0: Blob Talk Radio. Three ways. We're the show that tackles some pretty tough topics, and of course, you can access us anytime online and listen to any of our archive shows. Right now, today, I have to say that the store, the show that we're going to be doing today, the topic that we have is something that just I, I it just gobsmacked me when I read it in the newspaper. It, there was a lawsuit against the Los Angeles school district, uh, specific district, and um, the lawsuit was because a young mentally disabled woman, girl, was um, raped during school by another student. Not mentally disabled, and the parents sued for less than ten thousand dollars, or it was right around ten thousand dollars, because they wanted the school district to help pay for her counseling, um, you know, and and her her uh, medical aid for this. School district refused, and um, so the case went to court. Now again, the parents are asking for a very small sum. The school district hired an expert named Dr. Stan Katz, who um, some of you may remember that name from the Michael Jackson case. There are some other uh, fairly high-profile things that he's he's been involved with. So the Los Angeles School District hired Dr. Stan Katz to be on their side, and this professional psychologist um, testified in court that the trauma experienced by the young girl was not – as significant as trauma would be if she had um, uh, within the normal range of IQ. I read this and just about freaked out. Really? I mean, you have to have a a 100 or what, what's the average here, about 100 to 120 or 80 to 120 or whatever the average IQ is. This person thinks that you have to have that in order to suffer trauma from a, an assault. I, I was just taken aback by this tremendously. So I called my friend Brian Talent, who is program director at the Aurora Mental Health in Colorado, and he manages the Intercept Center. That's a mental health outpatient and day treatment program for children who have a diagnosis of developmental disability and other uh, co-occurring mental health disorders. And he works with a lot of disabled children. Brian, welcome to our show.
1: Thanks for having me
0: oh, you're welcome. thanks for joining us and um I you know when I talked to Brian um earlier when we were emailing about the show, I said sometimes I get sarcastic and I kind of feel that coming on with this expert from the school district. So forgive me if I come across as a little sarcastic. It's because I am so Brian, <laughs> give me your take. When did you first hear about um this this uh Dr. Stan Katz's testimony? at this lawsuit in
1: this lawsuit well actually you know heather the the first time that i heard about this lawsuit was actually when you contacted me um and i know that uh that that we had connected with each other through the national child traumatic stress network and uh and i had not heard of this case i'm, I'm kind of surprised that i hadn't heard of this um but just like you i was pretty gobsmacked when when i read it um uh it's uh it was it was really concerning um i i would be uh, feel the same as you I, I tend to be pretty sarcastic but uh but uh it was it was pretty shocking <laughs> well, how fun today, then. It was pretty <laughs> yeah right yeah. well it was pretty shocking to me and my colleagues i mean uh, they were they were just outraged um the, the the amount of work that we're doing in order to try and and close the gap for um help for for kids who have developmental disabilities who've been traumatized it's 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 um you know it's 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 a lot of work in order to to go against the, the the tide and so yeah we were we were really concerned to hear that such a high profile member of our field would uh would have such um damaging um testimony and uh really though you know it's um, yeah we we were just pretty much floored by it yeah yeah. But I but I, yeah, I, I just I, heard about it recently.
0: Yeah. Well, and and actually the case, well, the case itself is 2 years old. The situation has been around mm-hmm. for 2 years. But um he the, you know this trial only happened um in the fall, I mean right bef- just before Christmas, I think a couple months before Christmas. So it is a uh, relatively new situation. And what this doctor said, as I mentioned, the girl has an IQ between 64 and 70. Um, the, her assailant was not disabled. The school district argued that the girl's IQ was a protective factor that could reduce the harm she suffered as a result of the assault. In other words, this guy said that, you know, uh, uh, people with higher intelligence, w- intelligence would ruminate about it and understand implications and make all sorts of connections that because of her IQ this girl would not be able to make and therefore her suffering would be less. Is there any validity at all to what this guy is is proposing?
1: No, absolutely not. As a matter of fact, it pretty much flies in the face of everything that we understand about human resilience and trauma. Um, Actually, what we understand is that intelligence is a resilience factor. Uh, There's been some famous studies done, uh, especially a while back um, studying Vietnam veterans, uh, coming back from the Vietnam War, where it was clearly demonstrated in the research that that intelligence is a resilience factor when it comes to um, post-traumatic stress. And so, um, everything that we have come to understand about resilience and trauma, uh, this is counter to uh, to what we know from the research. Uh, basically, the way that I look at it is that you know we all have a, a certain amount of personal resources and. Those personal resources are what we use. Um, if you have a lower IQ, and, and I want to point out, by the way, this young lady had a very mild disability. If you have an IQ that's in the upper 60s, uh, that's a that's a very mild disability. It's barely under the threshold for what is considered legally to be a developmental disability. So that's um, – I just want to point that out first of all. Usually somebody who's got an IQ in the 60s, they um, – That you probably would not know that they even have a disability unless you spend a significant amount of time talking with them. So I want to point that out. Is that what they used
0: to call like a slower learner?
1: Yeah, I mean, and still, unfortunately, I mean, uh, just just recently in the DSM-5, the condition has actually been changed. But for many many years, we use the uh, politically incorrect term mental retardation, which is that falls in the mild range. There's there's four levels: mild, moderate, severe, and profound um and and the upper 60s is just below the threshold for what is considered uh mild mental retardation um but yeah.
0: you know i don't have- particularly pay, i don't pay a lot of attention to the IQ numbers i i think that I, I, I think they're pretty much irrelevant however isn't an, a normal IQ considered uh, like around 80 or 90 or 100 what what is well, what did they but- traditionally consider a normal IQ range
1: Well, the IQ tests are based on the norm of 100, so so basically the average will fall right at 100. So uh, that's so. So this person, this young lady, had a really mild disability, and and the way that I look at it is that you know if you have a disability, you you are basically putting all of your personal resources towards everyday activities like getting up in the morning, getting dressed. Uh, you know getting meals together getting uh, transportation to your job to your school uh, interacting with folks when you've got communication deficits when you've got difficulty with planning and forethought when you have you know difficulty with organization and and um, basically the high level you know brain functioning you're putting all of your personal resources towards those day-to-day activities I mean I don't know about you but I'm I it's hard enough for me to get up in the morning and get myself ready and and get to work and, and do my job. But, yeah. But when you have your, your faculties are, are are compromised, it doesn't leave you with a lot of extra and reserves for dealing with traumatic events, such as sexual assault, especially repeated a sexual assault. Um, and so, so yeah, uh, Dr. Katz's uh, testimony, it flies absolutely in, in the face of all the research and what we understand about human resilience. It's, it's, uh, it's not just absurd it's it's uh it's damaging it's really concerning um that uh, a, a an expert in our field uh, although i have to say it's not it it unfortunately doesn't surprise me <laughs> because <clears throat> oh really I, mean, I have well i have much higher expectations of uh from a psychologist that 's for certain um in the field but i think that this is just a symptom of an overall uh, problem that we have in our culture about people with disabilities and in particular people with intellectual disabilities um, there, they I think that overall culturally we see them as being lesser people. And I think that this is a good example of how that pervasive attitude in our culture um, unfortunately comes out and in, in it's pervasive, Across our culture, but this is an example of where it comes out in an area where it's extremely damaging. It's coming from a professional who should know better and and really in 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 an individual and in a situation where it does harm. And so it it is really concerning that somebody in the field uh, of human psychology uh, would take the position that a disability is a protective factor when actually it's the opposite.
0: Yeah, 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 I, that makes sense to me. Um if you are interested in asking some questions about this, if you're interested in putting in your comments, maybe you have an experience with this kind of attitude, please call us. The number is 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. I'd love to hear your comments. Um, Brian, I've done a little little very brief research on uh, Dr. Katz because his name sounded familiar to me. And um, it turns out I, I'm still trying to track him down, and maybe one of our listeners knows this, um, but apparently he's a, a rather uh, high-profile Beverly Hills, Los Angeles-type uh, psychologist who has some rather... Um, Shall we say interesting attitudes uh, about different situations in life? I believe that he has been involved in a number of child custody cases, and one that we might be more familiar with is the Michael Jackson case. Um, and he was used, apparently he's been used by the Superior Court in Los Angeles for quite a number of quite a number of things. Um, as a consultant, uh, apparently that's how he makes his business uh, uh, or makes his living is as a child family court child evaluator. Well, <laughs> anybody who's had hmm. experience with family court child evaluators has their own stories to tell. Um, and uh, sometimes those stories can be rather shocking. Um, so... I think, you know, if somebody wants to inform me um more specifically I'd love to hear it, but <clears throat> my impression is is that Dr. Katz is uh kind of out there um in his in his thinking. And in fact, um and I sent you this link Brian, it looks like the school district is kind of backing away from him now uh after all the <clears throat> excuse me all the bruhaha um over his supposed advice or or opinion. Have you noticed that? Have you read anything about that?
1: Yeah, I did notice that they I, I did read that they were backing away and uh he's no longer representing the Los Angeles school district. And uh um and you know I think that uh you know what's concerning to me is that is that uh unfortunately I don't think that his attitude is really um that far out there like I said earlier, I think that this is this attitude is fairly pervasive. It's just very hidden. What mm-hmm. what I do, working exclusively with children who have developmental disabilities in the mental health field, is very rare. Um, the program that I run is the only one of its kind in, in the state of Colorado, and one of a handful of, of clinics like it at across the country. And uh, basically, this perception that people with disabilities. Um, are lesser or don't require the same attention um, when especially in the area of mental health treatment is is really concerning because it 's actually the opposite and and I see that attitude about well and and I know that this is a gross oversimplification, but the pervasive attitude I even see sometimes in my own professional field is that these are almost uh that and, and, and interesting too. It's, it's kind of funny. Is that this is the stigma of disability, and it, it's not funny. But in the, uh, I feel that stigma also working with this population. That you know, I'm I'm almost a therapist working with almost people, and and it's oh. really unfortunate because the complexity that comes with uh, neurological problems. The the brain is incredibly, uh, absolutely fascinating as far as uh, the complexity, and. The the problems that can happen uh, neurologically with people is incredibly complex, and the clinical skills in, it, necessary in order to you know make adaptations to 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 adapt treatment in order for it to be appropriate for people with developmental disabilities is very complex. But it is interesting in my own field that that stigma of disability is uh, it's far spread, and so Dr. Katz, unfortunately, I think. Represents a his comments represent a collective consciousness that we have in our in our culture about people with disabilities being lesser and requiring less and needing less and being not as important and uh, um, in this case it was incredibly da- damaging uh, potentially damaging uh, thank goodness it it, it basically backfired um, on and, and 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 these lay people who were in the jury. Uh, who didn't need to be licensed psychologists um, were able to see that that's um, that not only is it not accurate, but it's damaging. Um, because what I do, I think I I consider it a cultural competency. People with I don't have necessarily a, a, I, I mean I've developed a clinical expertise, but uh, what I what I have done is is developed uh, really a cultural competency because people with disabilities have their own culture and. Unfortunately, abuse and neglect and trauma is a part of that culture of disability. Um the kids that I work with, there's not a single child that I work with. I've worked with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids over the, the twenty years that I've been doing this, and every single one of them has a story of bullying and, and, and trauma. Um, every single one of them. And and usually the treatment that I'm doing, it's not just, oh, this is what happened to me. You know, it's more like this is what happened to me when I was seven. This is what happened to me when I was twelve. This is what happened to me when I was fourteen. This is what happened to me when I was twenty one. You know, it, it it's just pervasive in their lives. And and to to believe that uh that they're not impacted by that or or are impacted less because they have less personal resources or or neurological faculties is, is absurd. And well um, yeah,
0: I, I just you know I, I one of the things that I wanted to point it out point out here that we didn't talk about in this in this article that we should probably point out the girl who was sexually assaulted was nine years old nine right. um It's not like she was some sort of you know teenager where somebody might have assumed she was sexually active at that point. This was a nine year old child. Mm-hmm. The family asked for compensation. Um, uh, between $10,000 and 12500 um, because they said she needed some mental health treatment to deal with this trauma that because she needed long-term therapy. The jury that you just pointed out had some common sense where, you know, some of the experts don't. The jury actually awarded the family $1.4 million, which is kind of, to me, they, the family was asking. The school district didn't even pay. I mean, it seems to me that if all they were asking for was $10,000, if there was no question that the assault happened, if I were the school district, I would be happy that's all they were asking me for. Mm -hmm. But instead, the school district chose to fight it. They hired their expert, Dr. Stan Katz, to go in and explain why they shouldn't compensate this child. And the jury, which you know, had a lot more common sense than a lot of people I know. Said no. As a matter of fact, we're going to give her 1.4 million. To mm-hmm. which I went, yeah. "Yay, yippee, skippy! <laughs> Take yeah. that, Dr. Cat." Um, so I think those are some pretty important factors. So on the, on the one hand, when I read this, I thought, you know, my faith in human nature, you know, the whole thing that just kind of rocked, but then I got to the final paragraph, and I thought, all right, <laughs> all right, so this now yeah. is $1.4 billion, well, after attorney fees, um, to deal with this trauma for the rest of her life, which is, now, I'm sure, you know, these things don't happen. You go to a, a shrink for a couple of weeks or a couple of months or even a couple of years, and it's done with. These things affect us and stay with us our entire lives. No matter what our IQs, um, we just learn how to handle it and compartmentalize it. Or um, is that showing my ignorance, Doctor?
1: Yeah, you know, it's actually you know uh, the, the the part that was um, interesting to me about uh, as, as as Dr. Katz went on and explained his theory in court, uh, he he used this um, this rumination theory. That that depression is linked to a person's ability to kind of um, ruminate over and remember what happened, and and yeah. that if that's combined, revisit it, work and,
0: it through, kind of thing. Yeah.
1: right. But but what we understand also about trauma is that trauma is a is a very nonverbal. Um, it, it's it's encoded in the brain nonverbally. It's encoded in the brain through touch, through smell, through uh, through other sensory means than than sort of what I think Dr. Katz is suggesting in this, this sort of non, the sort of verbal sort of uh, self-talk kind of uh, forebrain processing that we do that's related to uh, depression and post-traumatic stress. And that's not the case at all. As a matter of fact, the the hypothalamus and the part of the brain that really is, that is triggered in, traum- in traumatic events, the, the releasing of, of, Um, adrenaline and and other kinds of hormones and chemicals when we experience trauma is a very, very primitive brain function. And and the way that those experiences are coded in the brain and the way that they're triggered and the way that we experience post-traumatic stress is not in this sort of uh, cognitive process. Everything that we understand uh, in the field of psychology about trauma what we understand is, is is a very basic brain function that that is not compromised in people who have intellectual disabilities and and in fact the the resilience factors that have to do that that protect us from post traumatic stress or help people spontaneously recover from post traumatic stress has to do with those that the way that we reframe and we're able to cognitively um change the way that we think about what what happened and so it it's just it really doesn't make any sense that um that the, the theory behind what dr katz said in court just doesn't hold any weight in the clinical arena
0: what disturbed me more is how frequently i mean thousands of times this guy has appeared in court to give expert testimony supposedly expert testimony um that tells me that, first of all, the school district was just fine with him being, you know, uh, representing the school district until it hit the fan from this particular case. Um, the other thing it tells me is that judges are listening to this guy, and that's really disturbing to me. <laughs> um, yeah. This guy has been used by a superior court as an expert witness. Um, wow. <laughs> you know, wow um is there no yeah. credibility required is there no vetting of expert witnesses um in the court system well, I, yeah. now i'm pretty sure that it's not the court that hires these guys well could be though couldn't right. couldn't it it could be um it could be i don't know it, it's just really disturbing on so many levels
1: well I, I think that you know again it really uh it it doesn't surprise me too much because Um, people with intellectual disabilities comprises about 2.6, 2.7% of our general population, which is a really small, relatively small number of people. Of course, that that constitutes millions of people across the United States, Um, Mm -hmm. but it's a very hidden and it's a very socially isolated and very disempowered uh, minority. And even psychologists – who don't have a lot of experience working with um, or just knowing people who have an intellectual disability will formulate these types of, of attitudes. Um, and so it, it doesn't really surprise me too much, unfortunately. Um, it, it goes to show you, I think, the, the barriers that people with developmental disabilities experience when it comes to accessing health care. I mean, because let's face it, that be Dr. Katz, who, I mean, I think that his... It, his career has probably turned more towards giving expert testimony than it is providing health care, but he's a healthcare care practitioner. And okay. and it tells you that he's not had any experience with people with intellectual disabilities, which tells you that people with intellectual disabilities are not accessing health care. And, and the reason they're not accessing health care is because there's a lot of professionals who have this feeling that uh, they're afraid. They're, uh, honestly, it's, it's like, like, like I said earlier, what I do is, 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 a, is a cultural, uh, what I have is a cultural competency in terms of working with people who have intellectual disabilities. Just like in the field of psychology, in, in applied psychology, we have lots of cultural um, competencies. It, it's just like if I were to work with an African-American or if I were to work with a, a Latino-American or if I were to work with uh, an Asian-American. Th- those are, if, if I don't have experience being around those different people of my, those minorities, then there's fear that develops there's um a feeling that as a mental health practitioner that you're not competent to work with them and um and so there's an aversion to working with them as as it as this happens with other disempowered minorities and it results in people not getting access to health care and it also results in people with intellectual disabilities getting poor health care when they get it, um, because they may go see a psychologist who who holds those beliefs, like, like Dr. Katz does, that they're really not deserving of it, that they're really not yeah. affected by the trauma, and that maybe they really, really, really this isn't necessary and isn't important. Oh, wow. I, I w-
0: wow.
1: Yeah, I, I want to point out You know, I, I'm you sorry, talk- I, I
0: may be being crude here, <laughs> but I mean, we... I, I, I'm a pet owner, and I look at a lot of these, you know, pet websites and see the cute dogs and see the please adopt me dogs and the sad stories and all that kind of stuff. It seems like in our culture we are willing to assume a dog can be traumatized and require, you know, some sort of treatment. Why wouldn't we assume that all human beings, regardless of IQ, would require the same thing?
1: Absolutely. Um Yeah, again, I think that, you know, it it simply comes down to people, when when they're unfamiliar, they're afraid. And uh, we all have experiences being around dogs and cats and pets, and it's something that's um, very common. I would imagine that the percentage of people in households who who have a pet is, is relatively high. People who have a family member or a friend with an intellectual disability is relatively low. And so it just simply comes down to familiarity and we're afraid of what is unfamiliar. And and you you mentioned earlier about the school district fighting this case, bringing Dr. Katz on uh with his defense and it I don't know, of course I can't comment specifically on this particular case in in the school district in Los Angeles, but you have to recognize that the attitudes of a school district um that that bring a psychologist forward with that type of defense it doesn't surprise me that that's a culture where this type of abuse is allowed to happen it, it, does that make sense that that if you're yeah. willing to bring a psychologist forward to say that there's a lesser person who doesn't require um who who is less affected by trauma that that tells me that there's that doesn't again it doesn't surprise me that's an indication of a culture in which this abuse is allowed to happen that people don't recognize that people with intellectual disabilities are vulnerable, extremely vulnerable. They're, they are custom made victims for predators because of their inability to recognize high risk situations. Um, their lack of credibility. I mean, I can only imagine if, if this girl's case is like the ones that I'm familiar with, um, She probably made attempts in in her own way to be able to let people know that this was happening, and was and may have been discredited because they have um, people with intellectual disabilities often have a credibility problem. Because well, do they really know what's going on? Do they really, uh, you know, are they really making this up? Do they understand the consequences of of making false allegations? But um, that's those are all contributing factors to a culture that allows that abuse to happen. That that sets up the scenario for vulnerable people to be traumatized. Um, so I think that the, the the school district's defense and Dr. Katz's testimony, again, it's part of an overall culture that that allows this to happen or creates the conditions that make it so frequent. And and by the way, I wanted to mention that when you look at the research for people with intellectual disabilities and trauma. Basically, children who have intellectual disabilities experience two times to tenfold the amount of trauma that kids without disabilities experience. So at the best, a child with an intellectual disability will experience twice as much trauma as a kid without a disability, and at worst will be more like tenfold.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, and that's what occurred to me when I was reading, you know, the supposed expert's explanation of how, you know, because they, as you explained, because supposedly rumination is a part of of, um, understanding your trauma, um, what about, you know, the extra trauma incurred by not understanding what the heck just happened to you? I would think you know the unknown is always more traumatic than when you can you know explain it to yourself and say well this happened and you know this person was just bad and blah 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 you know Um, it it, it seems to me there would be more trauma if you didn't have uh, the ability to intellectualize what happened to you and what occurred to you. Am I full of hot air there?
1: No, you know it's you know I think that it's great that the that the jury in this case recognized that um, that this young lady was re traumatized by her court case. <laughs> that oh, gosh, yeah. being told that uh basically being told that you didn't experience this um as a complete person was damaging in itself. <laughs> so I, I'm really happy that you know that, that they were able to recognize that not only was she victimized by her perpetrator but then she was, again, victimized by the school district in their defense. And, and that happens. I mean, that, that's, that's actually a fairly common experience that happens with anybody who's been victimized. Um, it's the reason that people don't come forward a lot of times when they're being abused is that they're afraid of what will be – how they will be judged. And, and in this case, um, was judged to be less of a person who was less affected because of their disability. So yeah, I, I'm glad that the jury saw it that way.
0: Yeah, I am too, that really, um, I mean, I got kind of to the end of that story where they got the 1.4 million and I just kind of went, Yahoo
1: Yeah, I did <laughs> they too. get those. it, they
0: get it. <laughs> um, so yeah, that like I said, this story you know brought it, it was like a good novel. You know, it started it brought you into the drama, and you know it it involved your emotion of outrage. And then when you get to the end, it's kind of like yay, satisfactory conclusion to this particular case um at least when it comes to the dollar amount um we don't know and we probably won't know exactly how that girl uh continues to deal with what happened to her um but at least she has the financial resources to try now to try and um uh, make the best of that situation for herself um how often do you hear of such you know, uh, uh, of this kind of thing happening, where some sort of trauma or, for that matter, some sort of experience is kind of dismissed because it happens to a kid with a lower IQ?
1: Well, unfortunately, um, of course, in, in my position doing doing trauma, lots of trauma treatment, uh, I hear about it uh-huh. frequently. Um, like I said, I um, it, I have been a part of a really fantastic there's a there's a national um, campaign called project illumination it's a it's a it's a public education and awareness campaign about sexual assault of people with intellectual disabilities and uh it's and and doing partnering with the um the arc of uh aurora colorado which is a uh, a a, uh an advocacy organization for people with intellectual disabilities um arc ARC um chapters are, are all over the United States and they're they're fantastic as far as helping to turn the tide uh and help people understand. But yeah, it it unfortunately happens quite often. And the stories that I typically hear from from children and families are that uh that they weren't believed, that they didn't that they have a credibility problem because of their disabilities, that they may not be totally aware of what happened um sometimes the kids that i that i work with certainly don't um sometimes they may not understand exactly what happened to them was uh was was wrong except for the fact that they 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 certainly feel the loss of power the the boundary violations they feel the 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 trauma that comes along with those experiences but they were never really told or maybe educated you know because sexual education is not not only is it sex education something that does not happen uh, with kids without disabilities but for some reason we also have this cultural belief that people with disabilities are not sexual in some way, and so we actually even limit their sexual education even more. And, and what we understand too is that people with intellectual disabilities have learning difficulties. So not only do you have to teach them about sexual education, but you have to really make it concrete and repetitious and give them extra, extra support and help around sexual education just the way that you would give them um, extra support and special education around all other subjects and um unfortunately um a lot of kids don't have a lot of sex education uh especially kids with intellectual disabilities and so there's a lot of confusion right? and and there's a and it and it contributes to their lack of credibility or um their understanding about what they're supposed to do in situations where they're being abused and so um yeah they 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 are often like i said not just abused but repeatedly abused and and unfortunately, I think it happens uh throughout a person's lifespan who when when people have intellectual disabilities it's 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 usually not discrete episodes these are these are issues that people with intellectual disabilities will deal with um whether it be sexual abuse or financial abuse or um bullying uh it's just pervasive. Yeah. yeah, and again, yeah, just when, when you have communication problems, then, then comes this issue of credibility.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and it, I think that, you know, when you talk about the, the sex issue, which even though this was a sexual assault, it involved, obviously, some sort of sexual uh, contact – um, we do have a lot of misconceptions. I think that we, as as a culture, tend to think that somehow or other people with disabilities are just asexual. Even, you know, whether it's physical disability or, um, uh, you know, intellectual disability, what, whatever it is, we tend to think that um, it just, you know, that those, those individuals are just, you know, exempt from the natural physical urges that everyone seems to have. Um, did, do you think that? Factor actually played into this this decision or into this this cat's uh, um opinion about uh the girl's trauma
1: yeah a- absolutely i mean that yeah I was just gonna say that that's that was clear in this in this defense um you know uh i i think that you know what what was sort of unspoken in this is that well you know this uh this little girl really doesn't have a complete sexuality and therefore, you know, wasn't as affected by this abuse. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, absolutely. I think that 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 certainly kind of resonates for me when I read sort of between the lines in this.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think that that, you know, I mean, I'm I'm dense. It didn't really occur to me that way before. Um, But, yeah, clearly I see that, that, You know, we're just kind of dismissing any sexual anything on the part of this girl, including her assault. Um, Yeah, or at least that's what Dr. Katz was doing. Um, Have you encountered this attitude among professionals? We've talked about it among lay people um, and, you know, culturally. How many professionals have you seen that, that share these kinds of misconceptions?
1: You know maybe one um, maybe forty
0: percent or
1: you know i i have to say that for the most part i think that when people when 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 I ask professionals uh if they learn about my specialty if if uh people come to consult um i i have to say that you know fortunately i think very well intentioned um m- professionals who are who want to do good typically do pretty well, i mean I, I think that when people have really good intentions um, but but everybody, including professionals, are really affected by these uh, cultural misconceptions uh, and and these um, about disability and so unfortunately, I see that uh, you know because stigma and um, stems from ignorance prejudice stems from ignorance. And I think that I encounter a lot of professionals that are very well intentioned, but they're very ignorant about this population. And I think that when, pe- when I think that there's a lot of really fantastic people that are trying to do good, um, but I think that they are sort of well, in- uh, they're they're misinformed or they just are ignorant about certain aspects and and of this population. I remember very early on in my career going to uh, a professional training development on. <laughs> on borderline personality disorder and some of my colleagues saying uh, what are you doing here do, do do people with do kids with intellectual disabilities have uh, borderline personality disorders <laughs> and i said yeah they have personalities and everything it's it's amazing and that, you know that's uh that's it's, a, just it's an example they got that
0: card dealt to them so they didn't need the the rest of the hand or something yeah you know?
1: Yeah and actually what what was you know the, I think that the real tragedy in this is is that there's a barrier to um access to healthcare for people with intellectual disabilities because of the this misconception that professionals have I mean I, that's what I see and that is most concerning to me is that we have a healthcare system that is it's diagnosis based so for example it, both public and private insurance companies um typically segregate mental health conditions and, and, and the payer sources for mental health conditions separately from, from physical ailments and physical um, issues. And so what happens is, is that there's, there's, there's a pervasive over-attribution of problems that people experience to their disability. So if you have an intellectual disability and you're experiencing depression and, or, or severe anxiety and it comes out in some behavioral it manifests itself in a behavioral issue. The professionals who see them, who are supposed to treat them, over-attribute these problems that they're experiencing to their disability and basically say, you know, they have, uh, you know, uh, uh, an intellectual disability or autism, and so this is all just coming from that, and there's really not anything you can do about it. And and so they don't provide care because they believe that it's all about the disability, which um, is is not the case there's not anything indicative to uh an intellectual disability or or even autism that uh causes people to be in distress and yeah. that's a real problem that i see in the professional world where it, it it results in an access to healthcare issue for people with disabilities and and uh and and, they, and there's i see and of course it's it's always about the money, right uh, as in the case with yeah. you know the school district um, th- it was it's often about the money, and so um I see quite frequently insurance companies who say you know this this especially mental health treatment is not medically necessary because it's due to a neurological condition, and that's not a diagnosis mm-hmm. that's covered by mental health insurance, and so they're denied wow. And, yeah. and that happens frequently. That happens very frequently. Um, I, yeah. I'm involved in more appeals for access to health care. I, I, I spend almost as much time appealing uh, reimbursement and payment for mental health treatment as I do providing the treatment. It's absurd. Yes, and, I believe that. and it's a real problem. And, and people who have intellectual disabilities and people that are a part of that culture know that that's a problem. and and they work very hard to try and fight the stigma and the ignorance, especially in the professional world. Um, And it is very frustrating because at the end of the day, a lot of times you really feel like these folks should know better. (laughs) You know, these are (laughs) professionals. Well, you know, like you were saying, it's
0: about money. And with insurance companies, I used to be actually quite involved in in healthcare issues and uh, insurance issues. And the... Main movement for an insurance company, I think, is to deny. If you just deny about every third one, then only about a, a certain percentage of those folks will ever actually appeal of it. Appeal it. So it's it's a a, a a gain for the insurance company. If we just say no, then most people will just say, "Oh darn," and pay it themselves.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah. A right. the insurance
1: company. Absolutely, and especially if you have an intellectual disability. Because again, this is a disempowered group of people who who you know the the insurance company put it back on the individual to you know say, "Well look, I need some mental health care," and they say, "Well, actually these problems that you're experiencing are due to your disability, so we're not gonna we're not going to provide you treatment mm-hmm. and then then the yeah. the impetus is put back on the responsibility is put back onto the patient to then make a case and appeal that that's not accurate and and when you have an intellectual disability your 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 ability to fight appeals um it, it's just not there so well even know, if you don't
0: have it, an intellectual disability even if you're very gifted intellectually fighting those insurance claims can be absolutely daunting uh and frustrating and i think that people who are dealing with any kind of issue whether it's some sort of mental disability or caretaker issues or uh even just you know children i mean you have to pick your battles and so if the bill isn't that bad you may just say okay i've fought it as much as i can i'm just going to pay it and it's only when you get to the point where you cannot possibly pay it that it, you know that it might be worth the effort to just dedicate your life to that for a few months uh, and take care of it, but um, you know it's it's kind of a game I think with with um, the insurance companies. You know, oh, don't get me started on the insurance companies. Um, but yeah, I, I think that yeah, there there used to be a saying which I actually like. It's one of my favorite sayings, which is it's easier to beg forgiveness than ask permission. And <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> the the same thing with the insurance companies. It's easier to deny. Than to have to actually pay it, you know, and and if we deny it, a certain percentage of those folks are going to go, oh, okay, and bingo, we've just won. Um, so yeah, and, you know, it's all it's always about the money, and um, I think that that problem with the insurance companies is not going to get easier uh, at all. But, um, so you know, well, I don't know I'm, how it's I, going I, to be. For, for, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I you know I I hope that we're moving in the right direction and that um you know I I see that the healthcare industry I think especially I see the very beginnings especially as a result of some of the healthcare reform recently going to a more integrated care model where where physical healthcare and mental healthcare are not as uh segregated that they're more integrated and I'm really hoping that it continues in that direction because I think that's going to be very good for people with uh developmental disabilities because there'll be less of this well what is it I mean that, that's actually what <laughs> I think I've built a, an entire career around answering the question, is this person's issue a developmental disability or a mental health condition? I mean, I'm, I, that's what, that's my job is, is basically to, and, and that's yeah. crazy making. Like these are whole individuals. These are whole people <laughs> who have yeah. a a disability that's integrated with their mental health and their, and their human experience. And and so I'm hoping that we're getting away from that and that we're starting to move in that direction because uh, right now it's so easy to say well this person has a disability and it's it's permanent and there's nothing you can do about it and so all of the problems they experience there's not anything you can do about it and that is a that is a healthcare crisis in, for yeah. for people who have disabilities i mean it is pervasive it's across the country it's across the world and mm-hmm. um and getting healthcare especially mental healthcare when you have a disability is is it's such a struggle and um, and it's not necessary, and I'm kind of hoping that we go more in that direction where people are treated more as whole individuals instead of, well, is this a physical problem or is it a mental problem? Because uh, anybody who's experienced um, a mental health condition and, – and by the way, one in three Americans right now is is diagnosable <laughs> – with the mental health. Yeah, i going to say, that little inherently. I would have
0: thought it would be much higher than that. <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I that, that's I that's I think that's a pretty rough estimate but um but you know anybody who's experienced which most of us almost almost all of us will experience at one point in our life uh you know that it's really not separate. Uh, the mind and body yeah. is not separate. When you when you are depressed, you feel that in your body and um, Oh god gotcha. And it, they're completely related. So I hope that we continue to, to move in that direction.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, the whole idea of, um, you know, we are one. I mean, it, 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 it's to me, it would be similar to saying, well, we don't cover from the elbow down. Uh, you, you know. <laughs> I mean, that's, nice. that's part of you. You know, that's part of of your your body, and it's part of, you know, what makes you. So the idea of, of setting aside certain things, um, you know, certain parts of us, is just really kind of crazy-making, I think. And so I hope that you're right. I hope that that is changing. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. Because we still have to deal with the money, you know? I mean, somebody... People... People don't work so that they can't make money. People work so that they can have their own lives and pay their own mortgages and, you know, that kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I mean, we have, and and it's not necessarily an evil thing, you know, but uh, we all have to make some money to pay our way and to, you know, get what we need to get in life, whether it be housing or education or whatever. Um, so we're still going to have healthcare. that problem no matter what. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah,
1: and I, exactly. I, and I don't know if the, I don't know whether or not this was a factor in in the case that we're discussing, but um, I I did wonder about the the money that the family was requesting because it, it, according to the article, it indicated that that money was to be used for for mental health treatment for her post traumatic stress, and yes. I, I was wondering about that because you know. Um, Obviously they I, I would believe it wouldn't be surprising to me if they were not wanting to have that health care covered um because it was difficult to either access um or pay for. Uh you know, yeah. that, that that's the kind of thing where I said, you know, well, you because know, then once you experience a trauma and you have a disability, now what? Where where do you get the treatment? How do you find professionals that um that uh, are trained, that are um, experienced, that know how to adapt treatment for people with disabilities and, and how are you going to get it paid for? Because, again, well, you, if uh, if this nine-year-old girl had walked into Dr. Katz's office for treatment, what would have happened? How would he have diagnosed her? Would he, would he have said, you know, um, well, you have an intellectual disability, therefore, you know, these problems that you're experiencing probably isn't due to the trauma because you weren't really impacted by it be- or as much because, uh, you know, you you have a disability. And and unfortunately, I think that that's that's, that's too commonplace, that that's the experience people with intellectual disabilities have when they go to get treatment is it's like, well, you come into, a, you know, a, a professional's office who says, well, I really don't think this is what you need treatment for. I don't really even think you need treatment because after all, you have a disability and that's, and that's, I call it diagnostic overshadowing. It's, it's, it's Ah. just uh, an over attribution of the problems to the person's disability and they don't get treatment. They don't get access. Um, Whether it's financial support for their healthcare treatment or they just get poor treatment from somebody who just doesn't have the training and, and, um, and, and, you know, I've been asked many, many times by – I've been a part of many different work groups and focus groups at the state of Colorado to, to to address this problem. I mean, I think that most systems are aware that this is a problem, and they're really trying to do something to fix it. So, I, again, I think that I, I, I'm optimistic that way, and I'm happy that that's the direction that we're heading. Um, but they say, you know, uh, Brian, how do we train professionals to know how to work with this group? And my response is, um, have them coach Special Olympics, have them um, talk to the gentleman who's bagging their groceries at the grocery store, and uh, volunteer with Special Olympics. Or you know, because that's really the experience that you need. You don't need clinical training as much as you need to let down your biases and your apprehensions and your fears, and spend some time with a person who has an intellectual disability and be a part of their lives, it's a very socially isolated group of people. They could really use, um, (laughs) we could really use volunteers to to do social activities, and that is all that clinicians need in order to be good at working with this population. If they can put aside their biases and their fears, I see therapists all the time, they have got great intuitive uh, abilities and skills they they can adapt treatment for this population they they have it in their gut they have it in their training they just need to set aside their attitudes and change their attitudes so that they can be competent exactly. to work with this population and
0: Brian, th- yeah, if I'm that's... listening to this show right now, and and this is an issue that's important to me, um, what is there an organization that I could go to? Is there, um, or perhaps I'm living in a situation where someone I love is is disabled and being treated in a way that I think is inappropriate um, for their best health? You know, where they're being segmented, for example, as we just talked about. What organization could they get in touch with?
1: Well, I think that just to to overall to get more information about intellectual disabilities and the culture of disability and the supports and the American Association for Intellectual uh, and Developmental Disabilities, AAIDD is a, is an organization that's nationwide. Um, the the Arc, um, the Arc is another organization that takes different forms in different states across the country but that's an advocacy group for people who have intellectual disabilities, and I think that they do fantastic work. Um, if professionals are interested, um, not just professionals, but, but if anybody is interested in understanding more about dual diagnosis and the, the condition of having a developmental disability as well as a mental health condition, then I would recommend the National Association for Dually Diagnosed, NADD. They can go to org. And that's a fantastic organization that is really working hard to um to turn the tide, especially in the professional arena, to understand more about developmental disabilities and how we um and how we deliver mental health services to that population. Yeah.
0: And I think this and, is and, you know, and again,
1: I think you-, you know Well there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of organizations too like Special Olympics where Um, It's not hard. Every single community across the United States of America has um, community-centered boards, which are organizations that provide services to people with uh, developmental disabilities, and you can find that organization in your area, and you can volunteer.
0: Great. Great great. Brian, it has been such a joy having you here. Uh, Your enthusiasm for your specialty is just uh, engaging and uh, it's uh, contagious, I think. So um, I I really do appreciate you being here. And although I do say I don't think we were sarcastic enough when it came to the Los Angeles School District, we could have we could have been a lot more fighting when it came to that, but uh, maybe next time. My, in my experience, yeah. organizations that do stupid things repeat them frequently. <laughs> so well, I, we may well, I really have to be able to have
1: another, another Yeah, I, re- I appreciate you yeah. having me. I really appreciate you focusing on this. I hope that, that districts and, and other systems can learn from this experience.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's important, you know, I, I, Everybody, or most people, I think, I'm I'm convinced not everybody, but most people have trauma in their lives at one time or another that they have to deal with. And so I think there's more in common, regardless of our accused, than we often like to admit. I often end a show, Brian, with a quote, and uh, as you can imagine, it was difficult to find a quote that dealt with dual disability. And you you just don't Google that and have a few good quotes come up. Um, But I did find a quote from Helen Keller that I think is kind of important to think about, and she said, um, "Let me see. She said something here. Oh, here we go. It's hard to interest those who have everything in those who have nothing." and I think that that's something that we all need to watch. We need to be interested in those who are different from us, who have less than us, or maybe even have more than us in certain areas. Um, but we need to have that interest in our fellow humankind, I think, in order to avoid these kinds of issues in the future. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, sure. listeners. Please join us next week. We're going to have a really interesting show next week. We're going to have Courtney Welton-Mitchell, who is a researcher and academic, and she is going, she's done a, a dissertation about the impact of imaging in domestic violence advertising. Domestic Violence Prevention Advertising. So I think that's going to be a real interesting uh, topic to explore. You know, when we see a picture of a woman with a black eye, does it help? Does it help us understand domestic violence? Does it help motivate us to do something about it? That's what her research is all about. So please join us next week, and again, as always, um, at www.blogtalkradio.com slash three women, three ways. That's the digit three, not spelled out. And you can access our uh, archives of all of our previous shows, including the one we did today. So email up to your friends that you think might be interested in hearing today's show, and they can access it whenever they want. Again, thank you for joining us. Uh, I had a great time with Brian, and maybe we can have him back some other time. Thank you for joining us for Three Women three ways